conference meeting at Blue Lake Camp, I'd been sitting in meetings all day long. I was a little stir-crazy. I'd gotten tired. Nothing wears me out more than having to sit through a meeting. And I decided I'd take a little walk, which was a good idea. But I made two disastrous decisions that turned it into a not-so-good idea. I started my walk at dusk, and I decided to walk in a part of the camp with which I was really not very familiar. It got dark. I tripped over a limb. I fell down a ravine. I got a little disoriented. I was lost. Did I mention it was dark? And I began to panic a little bit. And then it happened. I turned around and off in the distance, I saw a light. And I realized my anxiety subsided. I realized if I could make it to where that light was, I'd be okay. Some human being had put a bulb in that light fixture. There were people there. And so rather than dwell on the darkness, I began to follow the light. I tell you that story to introduce the themes that are in all of the scriptures we have heard today. Those themes run throughout our scriptures. Not only are they in the scriptures for today, they run through the whole Bible. These are giant biblical themes that are important. They are important because they are such significant parts of our lives. Light and darkness. Darkness and light. You think about it. Some days you wake up with energy. You literally hop out of bed and you get going. And every step, everything you do just falls right into place. And you have a great deal of accomplishments. And toward the end of the day, you realize what a great, grand, glorious, wonderful day this has been. Other days, not so much. You hear that alarm go off in the morning and you roll over and hit the snooze button. And you pull the covers up over your head because you don't want to get up. And so when you finally get up, you're late. And you run late all day. And every step you take is a misstep. And every turn you take is a wrong turn. And at the end of the day, you realize what an absolute, total, utter, thorough disaster this day has been. Light. Dark. Darkness light. But it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? We read the beautiful Psalm 99 
Such a great psalm of praise to God, so magnificent, extolling the virtues of God. The psalmist says God is great, God is exalted, God is high, God is mighty, God is just, God is righteous, God is holy. If my Pentecostal grandmother, whom I mentioned the last time I preached here, were present this morning, she would jump up in, at this point in the sermon and shout, Good God Almighty! But we can't get all the way through the psalm. We can't even get through this wonderful hymn of praise to God without hearing about human wickedness, human wrongdoing. And it's not just any human beings the psalmist is writing about. These are God's people. God's own chosen people are the ones doing wrong, the ones that have turned away from God and turned toward evil. But it goes deeper still than that, doesn't it? Paul writes in Ephesians, we are contending not just against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and wickedness in high places. So whether you call him the devil or the oldest biblical term, Satan, or just refer to the forces of evil. We know there's a push for good, God at work in our world, and we know there's a push back. And anything not aligned with the will of God, anything that is not for God, anything going against God, it's evil. We live in a fallen world. And there are evil forces at work in our world. Light and darkness. Darkness and God's light. Both are parts of our lives. One day Jesus took three disciples with him to pray. Took them up the mountain. You ever prayed with Jesus? I'm not talking about praying to Jesus. We all pray to Jesus. I usually rush into my prayers and say, Lord, now you know I want this and you know I want that. And you know I want this other. And Lord, you know I need. And Lord, I'm concerned about this person. And Lord, there's a situation I don't understand. I can't comprehend it. And even if I did understand it, I don't know what to do with it. I need you to go over there and fix that. And That's okay. Those prayers are legitimate prayers. God wants us to be honest and open. God wants to know the deep desires of our heart. But how much richer, how much greater how much deeper 
our relationship with God would be if we could take time, if we could stop. And pray with Jesus. Not so much telling God what we needed God to do for us. But if we could stop and say, Lord, what would you have me do for you today? Where are you at work in the world that I could join you? Where, where could you use the things I could? If we would pray with Jesus. It was while they were praying with Jesus that these three disciples saw Jesus transfigured, glorified, dazzling white. So bright, so intense, their eyes could barely stand. And I believe it happened just this way. I think Luke got first-hand reports from Peter or James or John, or perhaps he heard it from all three of them. But I also know this. Dr. Sims has been teaching us that the word, the Greek word, we translate glory, can also be translated essence. And what happened up there on that mountain, those three saw the essence of Jesus. They came to learn what Jesus really was all about. When I was in seminary at Duke, I didn't live on campus. I lived in a house in a Durham neighborhood. I lived with three other guys. They were also in school, seminary. Most of what I learned about Christian theology, I learned from those guys, great scholars. They taught me so much and they helped me get through seminary. Other neat thing about our neighborhood, we had a back exit, a way out that not many people knew about. You could take that road out of our neighborhood and hit a state highway and go by a national park, Hillsborough National Battlefield, where one of the last battles of Civil War, Battle of Hillsborough, North Carolina, was fought. Take that road and really easily, really quickly, you could get on I-85 South, which was what I did to get home to Alabama. One night, my stomach had been distressed all night. Finally, I realized I was not going to get any better until I took something for it. And I headed out the neighborhood and I headed toward that state highway to a store where I could get some medicine, get some relief. On the way out of the neighborhood, I saw one of my neighbors. My neighbor, Bob Kowalski. Bob was a truck driver. who would get a load the day before, load up his truck. Early in the morning, he'd drive six hours down to Atlanta, get another load, drive six or seven hours back to Durham and unload it. Bob did this every day, four or five days a week. 
dependent on his schedule. But on this day, he was up early and he was putting out our mutual neighbor, Tommy's fruit stand. He was setting out fruit and vegetables. Tommy was a paraplegic, confined to a wheelchair, and Tommy's only income he got from putting fruit and vegetables and canned goods at this fruit stand. I stopped, I got out, I said, Bob, you setting up Tommy's fruit stand today, huh? Bob said, yep. He was not a big talker. I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. I, I really didn't understand what was going on. I said, well, Bob, how often do you do this for Tommy? He said, every day Tommy has fruit and vegetables. I said, Bob, you mean to tell me that every morning before you start a 13, 14 hour day, you come out here and set up Tommy's fruit stand? He said, yep. I still didn't, I couldn't comprehend what he was talking about. So finally I said, Bob, why do you do this? He looked me in the eye and he said, because I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the way, somehow, at some time, Bob had caught what it meant. Bob had come to understand the essence of following Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we do not lose hope. Dr. Dill has been teaching us on Wednesday night about all the opposition Christians faced in the first century, the time 1 Corinthians I mean, excuse me, 2 Corinthians was written. The time the whole New Testament was written. The opposition the Christians faced. They faced opposition from the established church. The synagogues. Ancient Judaism. Christians were thrown out of synagogue after synagogue. They were expelled. They were excommunicated. They were denied the sacred privileges and the festivals and the seasons of their church. Not only religious persecution, they faced government opposition. The government of Rome. The Roman emperor had declared himself a God. The Christians worshiped and served Jesus, not the emperor. 
So not only were they guilty of religious heresy, they were guilty of political treason. And they were arrested and imprisoned and martyred. They caught it from every direction. It is easy in our day and time to lose heart, isn't it? It is easy to lose heart. We see the opposition we face. We see evil at work in our world. We cannot read a magazine or a newspaper or listen to the news. without sensing how deep and pervasive and insidious the work of evil is. And it is tempting to throw up our hands and say it is too much, it is too great. I quit. Psychologists call this the despair of magnitude. We look at the size of what we're facing and it just seems overwhelming and we despair. If anybody ever had a reason to despair, it was the Apostle Paul. He was thrown out of synagogue after synagogue He was beaten, he was stoned, he was whipped, he was arrested, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked. He writes in one place how he spent an entire day, 24 hours trying to stay above water. And yet he said, we do not lose hope. couple of things. He said we do not lose hope by the mercy of God. The end of Luke chapter 1, very end of that long chapter, old man Zechariah sees the birth of his son John. And he gives a prophecy about how John will go before Jesus and announce Jesus. And he then gives a prophecy about the great things Jesus will do. How Jesus will bring forgiveness and salvation to his people. And John, excuse me, and Zechariah says, By the tender mercies of our Lord. He will do this. Isn't that beautiful? By the tender mercies of our Lord. It is by God's mercy we find forgiveness. It is by God's mercy we find salvation. It is by God's mercy we find faith. It is by God's mercy we grow in our faith. It is by God's mercy we mature. It is by God's mercy we come to understand how to follow Jesus. 
by the tender mercies of our Lord. And finally, it is the fourth gospel. It's the only gospel that has an introduction. Before John gets around to talking about the life and ministry of Jesus, he has a prologue. John chapter 1 is his introduction to his gospel. He says in chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own home. And I don't think John means writing there. I don't think he means Nazareth or Jerusalem or Palestine. I think John's talking about planet Earth. Remember John 3.16? How John writes, God so loved heaven, he and Jesus stayed in heaven, right? No. John says God so loved the world, he sent his son into the world. It is this world John's writing about. This is Jesus' home. This is the world God loves. He came to his own home. He came to his own people. And again, I don't think that's Nazarenes or Jews or Palestinians. I think John means human beings. We're Jesus' people. He came to his own people and they received him not. But to all who did receive him, he gave power. He gave power to become the children of God. And then John says, And we have beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. In other words, we have understood the essence of Jesus Christ. So we do not lose hope. Glory to God today. Amen. I invite you to join now in our confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience.